Every day, people are faced with difficult choices that they have to make, whether in the workplace or not. Today's fun question is, do you prefer to live in the city or the country? Welcome to Impossible Trade-Offs. I'm Katie Harbeth, your host. Today, we're going to travel to India. India is one of my favorite countries to visit, to work in. I first went in the fall of 2013, ahead of their 2014 elections. I generally, when I was with Facebook, would go to the country about twice a year, mostly to Delhi, but also spend some time in other places around the country, but really got to know their politics, which is just utterly fascinating. Their state elections are bigger than most country elections, which is really interesting. And they are going to go to election next year. It is one of the main ones that we are watching. We don't have an election day yet, but they are usually going to happen probably sometime at the beginning part of the year. The other interesting thing about India is that they don't have a single election day, but they usually do this over the course of about six to eight weeks, and then they release all of the results. And so today, my guest is Shob Daniel, who is a reporter and editor with Scroll India, which is a website that covers politics and news across the whole country. And so we are going to talk all about how India's elections are structured, some about the parties and everyone who's running and all of that good stuff. So I hope you enjoy. I am here with Shobh Daniel from Scroll India, which is an independent news site in India. And today we're going to be talking all things Indian elections. Welcome and thank you for joining me. Hi, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. Um, we're doing this with the benefit of modern technology where uh, Shobh is in uh, is in India and I'm here in Washington, D.C. Um, and Shobh, I wonder if first you can just share with folks a little bit more about what your role is at Scroll India and the beat that you cover. Sure, Katie. So I'm the political editor of Scroll. I do a number of things at Scroll. I report. I look after a small team of reporters who write uh, reports and explanatory pieces on breaking down Indian politics to our readers. So that's pretty much what we do. I also run a podcast myself, so in case anybody wants to check it out. And uh, that's mostly what I do. I love, uh, personally, I love I love politics. I find it very addictive, which is probably not good. Uh, but uh, I love I love my job. Well, we're two political geeks here. And I'm also, since 2014, I've also been obsessed with Indian politics. So I'm very excited for this, uh, for this conversation. Uh, one of the goals that I'm trying to do with the podcast in diving deep into many of these countries going to elections next year is helping people who may not be as familiar with the general set political setup of the country who some of the parties are, et cetera, to help kind of give them a foundational knowledge before we jump into the nitty gritty. Would you mind sharing with us a little bit about the basics of how Indians go to the polls and elect their leaders? Sure, Katie. So like the U.S., India is a federal polity, which means we have states uh, and we have a federal government. So in around six months, we're going to be electing a new federal government. And unlike the United States, we have a parliamentary system where we actually elect a parliament. So we actually elect what is your equivalent of a Congress. And then it's the Congress that elects uh, the prime minister, which is how the British also do it. It's a system we inherited uh, after uh, uh, two centuries of British rule. So that's mostly what we have. Unlike the US, though, one of the most striking things, in fact, unlike Britain also, one of the most striking things about India is that we have an incredible number of parties. So we have literally dozens of actually viable, strong political parties across India. 
India, I mean, India is one country, but it's sometimes more instructive to think of it as a couple of Europe's where uh, each state has its own history, own culture, uh, own language. Uh, so, you know, I can talk to you, but there are many Indians that I can't talk to straight up uh, unless we have a common linked language in English. So it's called a subcontinent, but uh, India is kind of like bigger than North and South America put together. So uh, because of that, uh, different regions in India support different parties, support different leaders. Uh, and it's usually uh, Indians vote in a very diverse uh, way to elect these parties to parliament. And then they then elect the prime minister, except what's happened in the last decade is it's which is really the big story globally and in India is a rise of. And we'll obviously come to that in great detail later is the rise of the Bharatiya Janata Party, which is actually the strong central pole in Indian politics and has actually been elected to government on its own in the last 10 years. So it doesn't get a lot of votes by itself. It gets around, say, uh, 30 odd, late 30 percent votes. I'll look up the exact number. It's probably 36 or 37. But the way India's system is made, that's enough to give it a majority in parliament. And it's headed by an extremely uh, strong uh, and charismatic and popular prime minister. Although, of course, he has his critics, uh, Narendra Modi, who is uh, truly one of the most, uh, one of the strongest politicians that India has seen in its history. And of course, many people don't like that. And we'll come to that. But there's no doubt about it. That objectively, he's an incredibly popular person right across India, which is quite rare, again, because India is so big for one person to be so popular across the length and breadth of the country is quite rare. So we'll be going to elections in uh, probably in April, between March and, and May. We don't know the exact date right now. That's when the election commission will announce a date. Uh, but that's when uh, we have like uh, literally a billion voters come out and vote for their MPs. And uh, we'll see what happens with then. And for listeners, so they know, um, Prime Minister Modi's party, you may oftentimes hear referred to as the BJP. Um, so if you hear that, that's that's the party of the prime minister. And we will definitely dig into that. But first, I also want to dig into um, normally Indian elections are it's not one election day. It's normally a handful over a couple, like two months, usually there's, I can't remember if there's like eight or nine, or it can depend, but mm -hmm. you actually just wrote a newsletter recently about how um, the BJP is actually trying to push for a simultaneous election. Can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah. So that's a, that's a really uh, interesting and controversial topic. So what the prime minister, what the, what the BJP wants to do is basically it wants to hold federal and state elections at the same time. So, for example, in the U.S., there is there is no necessity for, say, Florida and the federal government to be elected together. But Modi wants to wants to make it so that the sort of the governors of the of the of the states as well as the prime ministers elected together. So it's on paper. It seems like a almost a banal thing, uh, except in, in in India, the data shows that when voters vote together, very often they tend to favor the national party. Remember, India is an incredibly diverse polity, a lot of parties at play. So this would actually hit parties that are restricted to each state. Uh, they will lose out to Prime Minister Modi. That's that's the gambit. It still hasn't happened. And I would think it unlikely that it happens before 24. But if it does, it will really change India because it will change India's federal structure of politics. 
Now, does that mean that doesn't change the fact that Indians will still go to the polls probably over a handful of days, right? Or does it mean that they everybody because I don't know if I mean, if that'd be quite the undertaking for the entire country to go to the polls on the exact same day. No, so that that really doesn't have too much of a relevance of simultaneous elections. The long duration of Indian polling is actually just a purely logistical issue, mostly to do with the fact that, uh, you know, things like security forces and personnel need to move from place to place. So Indian polls are so large that India, in spite of it being very large, doesn't have enough, say, security personnel or bureaucrats to actually conduct a poll, like one polling day across for a billion Indians. So what happens is, you know, you'll have a phase, you'll have, say, a six-phase poll. So you'll have the first phase of polling on, say, April the 1st, and then the next phase of polling on April the 6th, because between 1st and 6th, you'll have, you know, uh, sort of military forces moving from one state to the other, taking their positions and uh, conducting the polls. So it's based mostly a logistical exercise. I mean, obviously, every every political exercise has its own uh, power plays behind it. So people do benefit from different phases of polling, but it's largely, I would say, logistical exercise. It doesn't have much to do with simultaneous elections per se, because it won't really make much of a difference because simultaneous election means when a one when one voter goes into a to a ballot booth, instead of casting one vote for the federal government, he'll just be casting two votes, one for a state government, one for his federal government. So it's not really a big logistical increase. But yeah, I mean, it, it is it might it might change what his decision was, because if you ask him to vote six months later for only a state government, what weighs on his mind would be very different. Just to give you an example, for example, national security, which is a big thing in every country, obviously is also a big issue in India, except national security only really plays out at the federal level, which is probably true in the US also. So it's only when, you know, when you're looking at national security is only when you're voting for the federal government. Usually for the state government, you're voting for more banal things like I don't know, roads or water or, or, you know, soup kitchens or whatever it is. But if you're actually doing it at the same time, then, you know, you'll have an influence, you'll have a national security influence on the state election, which didn't exist earlier in the mind of the voter just because it's happening at the same time. It might seem like a small thing, but it's uh, it's happening at the same time. The other problem with simultaneous elections, not to get too much into it, is in the parliamentary system, a government actually can fall at any time. We don't have fixed terms for our executives. So unlike in a presidential system where unless the president is impeached, he will always serve out his four-year term. In India, actually, the prime minister only serves out his term till he has the support of the legislature. Now, in theory, uh, a state legislature, a state government could fall before five years. And right now, what happens is they immediately conduct election. But if there is a simultaneous election thing, then that government would be frozen and basically, that state would be administered by the federal government as a stopgap measure. So this would actually mean that voters in the state for, say, half their term don't actually have a democratic government. They have a government by fiat, which is, we, you know, which is bureaucrats sent from New Delhi are basically administering that state. And remember, a state in India, like the state that I come from, has more people than Germany, right? So it's a big thing. It's a big deal that, you know, there are, there are literally, you know, 10 million people who don't have democratic government for critical things like police or so on, right? 
Yeah, I oftentimes try to remind people that like many of the states in in India, like you just mentioned, are bigger than most countries that go to the polls, and that's why some of the state elections are just as important as the the national level elections. Really quick before we dive into a bit more in the politics, do people need to register to vote um, in order to to vote in in India, or how does that work? I'm just kind of curious for those who are really nerdy about the logistics. Right. So it's you do need to register to vote, except uh, in India, unlike in the U.S., it's not. Till now, such a big deal because you do get very easily registered. So in India, you know, for 90% of Indians who are poor, the vote is extremely important. It is not a matter to be trifled with. It is not something that you do on a Sunday because it is the one bargaining tool that these people have to get the state to listen to them. So it's not a luxury to vote. It is an absolute necessary thing to vote. Just to give an example, for example, right now I'm in Delhi, which is a big, which is a big metropolis. You have a lot of people coming in from uh, the rural areas in India to come and work here as a, the whole working class population is probably from outside. When elections happen in their states, they will actually take a train, take a pay cut, lose like a week's worth of wages, go back to their village and vote because it is so important for them to be able to vote. It is, it's a very common thing when there's a vote, the trains are full because people are going back to vote. So in India, voting is extremely critical. It's the only way almost many people have for the state to listen to them. It's it's truly a remarkable and actually, you know, extremely heartwarming thing almost to see democracy in action in India because it is so critical to so many Indians. It's maybe not very critical for an elite Indian because he has other ways for the government to make him uh, listen. He can go on a podcast or something, I don't know. But for, for an average Indian, the vote is very critical. And so this registration that happens, there is a technical registration, but everyone does it. It's almost like everyone in the village will be registered. Every time a boy or girl turns 18, which is the Indian uh, threshold to vote, he will get registered. Parties will mobilize very often to make sure that voters they think are their voters will get registered. Before the voting day takes place, you know, you'll have party workers that will say, come to my house and say that, uh, you know, brother, please remember to go and vote tomorrow. So it's an extremely involved process. There have been some questions raised about this recently, uh, about the conduct of the election commission. But overall, those are wrinkles. I would say overall, it's still an extremely involved process because uh, it's such a demand-driven process. The voter really needs to vote. So something very big will have to happen to prevent her from voting. Gotcha. Let's turn our attention back to the parties. You mentioned how diverse India is and the number of viable parties that that they have. I was wondering if you could go a little bit deeper into that about who some of those the major parties don't you don't have to go into every single one and what some of their their strengths and weaknesses are. Right. That's a great uh, question. So number one, let's start with the Bharatiya Janta Party, which is the BJP. Uh, This is the biggest party right now, it has a majority in India's lower house, the Lok Sabha. Uh, it's a it's a it's a Hindu nationalist party. It largely believes in the idea of Hindu nationalism, which in Hindi is called Hindutva. Uh, it actually was quite a minor party till till three decades back, and uh, it really rose. It sort of burst out into prominence in the early nineties uh, when an extremely contentious dispute between a mosque and a temple took place in northern India. And the, the BGP really mobilized to destroy, to demolish that mosque. And the mosque is currently demolished. Uh, and that really acted like this incredible catalyst for the party. 
and today it has a sing i mean it's come to power earlier also but it came to power as part of a coalition so you come to power in india as part of coalition which obviously which obviously hamstrings you to implement your policies right now it's in power uh, completely on its own uh, in parliament so it can i mean legally it can do anything it wants of course there are other pressures to go through when you pass policy but it has it has a majority in parliament it doesn't have to depend on any other parties to pass any bills or do anything in parliament so that's number one the second largest party is called the indian national congress or just called the congress sometimes so this is india's grand old party uh, it is literally the party of indian freedom this is the party that mahatma gandhi belonged to in fact very i mean the modern structure of the party was actually made by mahatma gandhi the current uh, sort of the leadership structure of the party so this is the party that fought for freedom from the british uh, it led this freedom movement from in the first half of the 20th century uh it it got freedom when it got freedom it is the party that got it that assumed power as the british left and uh, india's first prime minister jawaharlal nehru uh, was from the congress uh, they ruled uh, almost uninterrupted till the early 90s and they were almost uh, uh although india's elections were always free and fair at that time they they still had a which is a very unique thing actually in a democracy especially in a in a poor democracy they were almost hegemonic at least at the federal level So, if you ask my grandmother, for example, I mean, for her, it would be unthinkable for anybody else to rule other than the Congress. I think for most of her life, it's almost like the natural party of governance. But of course, their star has waned um, uh, after the early after the early nineties as the BJP's rose. Right now, they're being led by Rahul Gandhi, who is Jawaharlal Nehru's great grandson, and no relation to Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, just a coincidental surname. uh so they've sort of the congress has to some extent shrunk to some extent and become a dynastic party where they very much depend on the descendants of jawaharlal nehru as their core and right now he's pretty much leading the charge against modi uh he was in a bit of a bad way i think till 5 years back but he led a bit of a resurgence he led a march from southern india to northern india he walked for 3500 kilometers or i think 2000 miles so he's doing that so these are the two main parties national parties or federal parties that you could call in india then you have a host of extremely strong powerful state parties and you know i'm just going to touch on a couple because otherwise we'll be going on forever uh the most for example one of the most impressive state parties is right at the south of india um uh, is uh, tamil nadu uh, which is uh, which speaks the tamil language they have a party called uh, the dravida munnatra kelakam which is dmk we're just going to shorten it uh that's um now that is a party which like the the way the bjp centers uh, the uh, hindu identity as part of its as part of its policy as part of its ideology the dmk centers tamil identity as part of its policy so it says that you know the tamil speaking people it sort of speaks for them so because india is so big you can really cut cut indians in many ways and group them in many ways so it's it's what it looks for for example one of its pet peeves is or pet policies is that india's largest language is hindi uh but hindi is mostly concentrated in the northern parts of india and there have there has been a constant push uh for the past century to get in to get all of india to speak hindi that's something that dmk really pushes back against because they they think that we are tamil so we're going to speak tamil there's no need for us to speak in hindi if we need a link language which we do that link language will be english so we should talk to uh, 
if you want to talk to people from other states, we'll talk to people in English. So this is mostly it. Uh, the other, the I think the second most, I think, powerful state party is from West Bengal in the East, ironically. Uh, that's uh, another run by a very interesting leader, uh, a woman leader called Mamta Banerjee. She's also taken on Modi. In fact, she defeated Modi famously a couple of years back in a, state, in a highly contested state election. So but these, these are a couple of other things. These people are both numerous, but they're also... They're also the BJP's Achilles heel because that's where the BJP is really weak. When it goes into a state and it meets a strong state leader, it meets a mini Modi, so to speak, right, in that state. That's when the BJP has really stumbled, we've seen, over the last 10 years. So BJP defeats the Congress quite easily. So that's a national party or national party. It's a, it's usually a straight fight and usually the Congress loses. But it's when the BGP comes across these strong state parties with their strong state ideologies and their strong bastions in their own states. It's when the BGP uh, faces problems with the BGP then can be easily painted as uh, an outsider because it comes from North India and so on and so forth. You, know, you, can, you can sort of almost put the shoe on the other foot and run a sort of... Uh, run a sort of nativist politics of the other side, which almost edges out the BJP. Is the um, Ahmed party still strong in Delhi? I know that they were really strong. What was it, 2013, 2014, when right. Modi first came to power? I'm just curious because I remember I remember right. watching some of that. No, so that was very interesting. And I, I was actually in Delhi and I watched that movement uh, up front. So basically uh, what Katie's talking about, there was a big anti-corruption movement at the end of the Congress's last term. Uh, uh, between 12 and 30. And that movement gave rise to a party called the Aam Admi Party, which literally translates to Common People's Party. So they did very well and they captured the city of Delhi, which is a big metropolis. And they've actually also, they also right now have a chief minister in Punjab, which is a border state bordering Pakistan. So they've done well and they are doing well. But I would still think that so they sort of belied their promise. At one point in time, at 14 and 15, it looked like they were going to be a national party and they were going to be counted along with the BJP and the Congress. Except right now, I think they are a strong state party in these two states. And these two states aren't actually very big in terms of Indian terms. So, um, I mean, they're still a player, but I, I would say they're a player with Mamta Banerjee and the DMK. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's shift over to tech and what's happening online because that's also mm -hmm. capturing a lot of a lot of attention right now. Um, first, can you kind of give a little bit of an overview of how the campaigns have used technology and online platforms over the last couple of election cycles? That's a great question because this is really almost like one of the central uh, rivers of Indian politics right now. So tech is huge in India. Uh, the Washington Post did a fantastic series of articles, uh, I think, a week back now. It's around how tech is being used to fuel hate. And that's there, except tech is being fueled to used to fuel everything. So obviously hate is a part of it, but it's also general campaigning and general canvassing now takes place on tech. So till now, let me give you a thing. So till now, India had a system where uh, people were mobilized on the ground. And it was quite admirable in some ways. Uh, people uh, used to have meetings in India, they call rallies because it's so huge, where, you know, a leader would come and address a crowd and there would be literally, uh, you know, there could be, uh, there could be maybe up to a million people sometimes in one crowd. So, uh, you know, these people are rock stars, people would come to listen to them, people would come to hear them orate for an hour or a couple of hours. It would be, you know, some of the, some of the, some when the leaders would give a speech, it would be everything. There would be policy, there would be stand up. 
it would be everything. There might be music, right? So it would be this incredible sort of performance, and then you sort of try to woo this view, woo this crowd, and you know you couldn't maybe even if there's like a hundred thousand people at one place, I would think fifty percent of them have just come to listen to the guy. They're not going to vote for it because it's they they'll go to different campaigns, they go to different rallies, and then they'll make up their mind by the end of it. So this is how Indian politics was actually. That's how the outreach took place. Right uh, now, what's happened is because WhatsApp has come in, because social media has come in, and social media in India is incredibly democratized. Uh, data in India is very cheap. In fact, I think India is one of the one of the cheapest in the world. Mobile phones now are quite cheap. You can buy a mobile phone for five thousand rupees, which is uh, you can buy a pretty good mobile phone for five thousand rupees, which is I think forty dollars. I think if you convert it, so it's really cheap. Uh, working class Indians can afford a mobile phone. So a lot of parties, especially led by Modi's BJP, have pivoted. I mean, they haven't completely uh, left, uh, you know, old style rallies and old style mobilization. But a lot of their campaigning has switched to online, uh, to WhatsApp, to YouTube, to Facebook, and so on and so forth. Just to give you an example, just a couple of days back, um, Mr. Modi met with a fitness influencer. So. You know, um, this guy, this guy has become really famous because he's a village guy who's, you know, uh, who's sort of really become fit. He's He's got a rip board. And Mr. Modi actually, you know, he's a prime minister of India. He took out time for him to meet him for an hour and they had this sort of fireside chat. And, you know, that's just smart politics. Modi knows that this guy, he's a, he's a YouTube star. He's uh, He will impact BJP voters. So Modi is actually taking out time out of a very, very busy day and meeting with this young man and canvassing with him. So that's how important uh, social media is in India. It's incredibly important because it's a direct hook into your brain, right? You know, just, you're just tapping in into that young person's brain. And even if not, you're not reaching everybody in the family, but I think if you can reach like the 23-year-old daughter and if you can convert her, She'll then, you know, she might influence her parents and so on and so forth, right? Because that's how it'll work. So it's, this is an incredibly big thing. Uh, the BJP is the first mover. The BJP uh, actually ran a fantastic uh, online campaign for in 2014. I think there were a lot of echoes and it had a lot of learning actually from Obama's campaign. So Obama, I think, was the first guy who actually did in the US who ran this fantastic online campaign. And the BJP really learned a lot um so bjp is very good at this bjp is a very good uh, whatever like obviously uh, the ideology aside the bjp is very good at absorbing new tech it has smart people uh they've absorbed the learning from it they had an incredible set of consultants an incredible team that actually implemented this in 14 so um they did it and one of the things for example the washington post article also points out is that they have an incredible ecosystem. So they will actually take on, uh, they will actually absorb like-minded ideological fellow travelers and sort of give them some sort of incentive. It could be, it, and sometimes it could be straight money, but it could also be something more ephemeral, like, you know, meeting with a minister. That's a, that's a big thing. So you get that influence, you get that, you, know, you get that importance. So the BGP really pushes this hard. What's interesting is that other parties are catching up. So the Congress now has a pretty good, social media presence. So if you actually look at, uh, you know, when Modi and uh, Rahul Gandhi, which is the Congress's main leader, they do Facebook lives or Facebook events. Rahul Gandhi actually gets more views. Uh, so 
there is now a bit of a catch up that's been done but overall it just means that social media is incredibly important to outreach for indian politics it's, i mean it might now be more important than actually doing a physical rally Oh wow, yeah, and I remember um I remember in 2014 I think Rahul Gandhi didn't even have an official Facebook page and then they were definitely <laughs> playing catch up in 2019 yeah. um and and even today. Now, it's not just the the tech that the campaigns are using, the laws in India have changed also since 2019 vis-a-vis the the online platforms and in some of that. Can you can you dig into a bit more about what what is passed and what people are are concerned about when it comes to these right so i mean there isn't a, a laws haven't really affected a lot of the campaigning to be honest so i think uh, campaigning is still allowed but yeah there are what the bjp has done so it's more it's more complex so remember in india a lot of the campaigning actually is taking place over american platforms they're not really indian platforms it's whatsapp which is owned by facebook and it's facebook itself instagram so it's all kind of like a facebook kind of thing and there is also twitter which is a which is really small in india in terms of sheer numbers but like in the us i think it drives a lot of the conversation so if you sort of if you let a debate rip on twitter it sort of percolates down to facebook and whatsapp and so on and so forth right has that changed so, at all with elon musk taking over not not a lot i wouldn't think so So because it's so small you know so Twitter is a real uh, nerdy geek kind of place i think only it's mostly journalists and political activists there but but it's it's also like you know you sort of i'll tell you how twitter for example works in india so for example if the bjp wants to run say uh, sort of say some hate campaign against muslims right so first they will run a uh, run a trending tag on twitter so they'll be like whatever you know uh, love jihad or whatever they'll run a trending tag on twitter but remember that twitter tag is actually only reaching like maybe a few tens of thousands of people or even if you really stretch it a few hundred thousand people and india has you know india has india has uh, uh, 1.4 billion people so i mean the, the numbers are is not even a rounding error but that's only the first step now what will happen is that tag and those tweets will then be taken on to the 8 pm tv shows in hindi which will reach say 300 million people now those things will be made into memes and quick screenshots and then will be sent to whatsapp which might reach around the 200 so so you know you what starts off with just tens of thousands of people on twitter but then it eventually might end up reaching you know hundreds of millions of people through that chain so that's how it works and it's a very smart way to work so coming back to the laws because so much of this is happening on american platforms what the modi government has done in its really strengthened uh, things like safe harbor laws it strengthened uh, you know it's really tightened the screws on these online platforms in a way that now they are very scared uh, and obviously that's not a that's not a i mean maybe in a good i mean maybe maybe justified or unjustified i'm not going to go into that but they very they very scared now of antagonizing the government so for example uh if you tweet anything which is anti bjp there's a very high chance of it being blocked or taken down right no questions asked uh a couple of years back this is before the elon musk takeover uh the bjp government actually threatened to arrest the twitter india head uh for a tweet that twitter allowed to be up so using this it sort of has put in this 
supra sensor on top of twitter so what was what was this one outlet that indians had which was sort of beyond the indian government censorship controls is actually now in a very ironic and sort of dark way heavily censored by the indian government and very often the se- censoring is self censorship because you know they almost second guessing what is going to piss off the indian government right and because because social media is so critical to the bjp it has a hawk eye on what's going on on things like twitter and whatsapp and so on and so forth right so you know bannings and so on are super common on twitter if you if you if you take the wrong uh, if you take the wrong line uh, the other side of it is uh, hate is uh, extremely common on indian social media because they don't take action against uh, what are clear violations actually of the guidelines again this is again a part of the wapo series it's very well explained and you know we've been seeing this for the last decade uh, to give you a very egregious example for example um, uh, there's a person called monu manesar who is actually been accused of uh, uh, a case where two muslim men were burnt alive and which is actually before this happened for many years he would post videos of him lynching and assaulting muslim men and he would actually post them on youtube right so he would live stream them on youtube or he would post the videos on youtube and uh, uh youtube not only did it not take any action which is really remarkable because youtube actually has a really good uh, has a really good mechanism to identify violence things like copyright violation if you've ever done it you know if you ever put in a copyright violation you will get struck down immediately but yet some of these extremely graphic videos of these uh, men getting lynched and assaulted and you know bloody weren't ever flagged by youtube weren't ever taken down by youtube in fact youtube actually gave this man a silver play button which is you get it after getting a certain number of views so it's this uh, really surreal sort of uh, sort of interplay between us tech and um, this sort of vigilante uh, extreme vigilante violence i mean vigilante is a bad word to use because it's happening completely with the connivance of the police so vigilante often refers to like an extra legal but actually he's working under the police with the police but he's working with the police and he's working with youtube so this sort of thing is given free reign uh, and it's for me it's sort of difficult to see this as a tech failure and i would rather look at it as a policy decision that these tech giants are taking because of these now draconian laws that have come in so if you want to be in india you've got to actually uh to the government's line so it's it's we almost we, we are in a slightly you know not to put to find a point on a china x situation where these companies actually taking a decision that they're going to uh you know adhere to these extremely problematic policies so that they can continue to do business in india and that's that's something that the bjp really uses uh the congress actually has raised allegations that facebook has favored the bjp and so forth in the last election um so this is where we are right so that's how the laws are actually so it's not like the laws are going to be used to completely directly take down congress content or opposition content but the ecosystem that it's created really you know uh, creates an unlevel playing field which favors the bjp yeah that makes sense and two things i wanted to to point or touch on as well one is that tiktok is banned in india correct are there other platforms that are banned as well no so it's it's only tick as the only major platform that's banned in india is tiktok and that happened after a short border border skirmish that india and china were involved in uh, in 2020 so the one of the retaliation they took was to ban tiktok 
and it's still banned. So TikTok actually became incredibly popular in India, uh, as maybe it is in the US. And in, it, it became a very uh, interestingly rural platform where a lot of rural Indians took to it and put on their songs and so on, but it was banned. But a lot of that activity now has shifted to Insta. So I don't know whether it's made a overall difference in social media activity that Indians do, because now I guess Insta itself has sort of tried to take over a lot of the TikTok uh, functionalities with those reels and vertical scrolling and so on. So I think a lot of the Indians have shifted to Instagram. Yeah, I, I find that interesting just to watch in terms of the conversation we're having here in the US around banning TikTok or not, plus antitrust and all of that. And, you know, I think India is a place for you know, people to go look to, to see, like, like you said, a lot of them just moved to Instagram um, and other places. And so there's some real, real trade-offs there. I also wanted to touch on political advertising, because I know that when I was still at Facebook in 2019, we um, implemented our, the political ad transparency tools there for that. But how much do the campaigns actually advertise and, and how much of that is online? So one of the very interesting data points that has come up recently is that there is a there is some shift from traditional legacy TV media, which was almost like the first port of call for political advertising in India. And I think that's still the case. But there is a trend towards more and more money being put into uh, online advertising. Unfortunately, India has very poor transparency laws that actually help us identify what is the exact quantum of this. Uh, it's quite so. India actually on paper is extremely strict campaign finance laws, except you can easily bypass them by, you know, using a different name or advertising, not technically as the party and so on and so forth. And there are really no checks on that. So, for example, what happens very often on Facebook uh, is a very common way of advertising is that uh, parties that have no direct link with the party will often get ads and so on. So there's no real way to check. Uh, so... Uh, slightly what I'm going to say is not completely backed by data, but the, the understanding that I have as a watch of Indian politics is there's a lot of money going into this. Uh, things like, for example, in India, Facebook is really the big uh, social media platform, you know. So Twitter is quite small. Insta is also growing, but it's still, I think, a young person thing. So like just speaking of me personally, like my grandmother is on Facebook but she's not on Insta. So Insta, Facebook is more democratic that way. It is. It has more Indian languages and so on. So a lot of BJP money, a lot of all party money goes into Facebook, honestly. But yeah, we'll never know the quantum of that, but it's, it's increasing so on. And so on. It's increasing more and more by the day. Last question. I'd love to just dig into your reporting a little bit more. Like right now, what is... What's interesting you? How are you picking, you know, what to cover? What are you kind of watching as we're... We're, only, we're not that far away before the, the country will go to the polls. We're not. In fact, before the, before the federal elections, there are a series of state elections that now uh, we in our newsroom are preparing to cover. Uh, that's number one. Number two, uh, our reporters right now, a couple of our brilliant reporters are covering. So there's a state in the, in the northeast of India, which is bordering Myanmar, called Manipur. So Manipur actually is seeing what is, I think, fair to call a civil war between two ethnic groups. So we're spending a lot of our resources and time and effort, and uh, there's a lot of brilliant reporting, I think, that we're doing from there. So right now, this is what we're doing. From a politics perspective, there'll be elections in November in three states. So we're trying to cover that. 
that's mostly it and of course there is a there's the day to day uh, stuff for example i think um, uh, i mean right now there was the women's reservation bill that was passed in parliament which is quite interesting where a third of seats in parliament are going to be reserved for women except it's only going to be implemented at the end of the 2030s so at the end of yeah. the 2030s did i hear <laughs> that right you heard that right <laughs> Oh my so gosh. it's a very yeah. So it's a very interesting thing actually. So it's been hanging fire for a long time, uh, but except obviously many sitting MPs are worried that their seats will go. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it's everybody's wary of implementing it. Except Modi actually got the bill through, but he put in enough clauses so that it'll probably happen after he stopped being prime minister. I mean, maybe. So yeah, so he's managed to do this, but let's see. It's not going to. Be, uh, let's see how it goes because what's interesting is that women are increasingly becoming a big. I mean, women obviously, you know, obviously very uh, involved voters in India. Except now they're coming into their own as uh, as as demanding voters. They're saying, you know, give me this because this is what I need. So to give you a very stark example in Bihar, which is a state in eastern India, there is complete prohibition right now as we speak. and this is completely a women uh, demanded move uh, because i think uh, women felt that uh, i think in india to some extent drinking is largely male skewed it's uh, and there was a lot of alcoholism in rural bihar and women demanded this from their from their chief minister and he gave it and he's in return he has a solid what we call in india vote bank quote on quote so usually in india vote banks were consisted of castes or religions so uh, this man nitish kumar the chief minister of bihar has actually made a women's vote bank which is which is really interesting uh, in my opinion that's all super interesting uh shob i really thank you for for joining me on this um i always tell people that i don't think we talk enough about what is happening in india so hopefully we'll be able to have you back i'll make sure to put links in the show notes to the washington post story as we mentioned to scroll to shob's newsletter or podcast all of that jazz cuz i highly encourage everybody to be paying very close attention to what is happening in india because it is fascinating and it really will impact um the rest of what we see happening around the world but thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for having me katie